Father, thank you that you've brought us again together here today. It's never something we want to take lightly, that your grace and mercy has found us and invited us back into another Sunday morning now with our church family uh, where we can say how good you are. Uh, Be honest about how good we aren't and how much we need you to shape us and change us and give us strength. And that's why we come to your word now. Lord, we come to your word because it has power to change our lives. It speaks what is true and good. Everything in it is true. And so we entrust ourselves to it. We submit ourselves to it now, Lord. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, our instructor. You guide and direct us. We want to know you, Father, as you are, not as we imagine you to be or hope you to be, but as you truly are, because all that you are is good and beautiful and right. So show us now as we look at Jesus' journey to the cross and what he chose to tell his disciples in that moment, in those times. Um, May they jump off the page to us, be applied into our lives now, Father, so that we might have fuel to follow you and to live righteously and lovingly, humbly and graciously. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, you may wonder why I'm holding a fly swatter and a hammer. Uh, odd enough, right? So I'm, I'm, anybody visual learner, you like visual things? I need, I need pictures of things. They help me. So I, I brought these up here just briefly to make a point. We're in this series of, of um, lessons on the road to the cross, right, where we're examining five different sort of snapshot moments that Jesus had with his disciples, those that were his closest followers, uh, in the days between the moment in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus says, I'm setting my face to Jerusalem, which is Luke's way of saying uh, Jesus determined to go to the cross. He knew it was coming. He knew his death was imminent and he decided and and with everything in him resolved to go and do the redeeming work that God the Father had called him to do. And so now the rest of the book of Luke gets shaped by that reality, by this sort of the cross is looming, the shadow of the cross is looming over everything Jesus does. And so we're calling this series Lessons on the Road to the Cross, but you might also call it the the Hammer or the Fly Swatter series as well, if you prefer. That's kind of how I think about it. And here's why I think about it that way, is I think about the fact that Jesus has called us all to, to follow him and to live these lives that are, that are full of all these different powerful things, right? Uh, we're to live lives that are filled with grace and truth. We're to be humble. We're to be wise. We're to build his kingdom in the world. We're to be people who represent him well. And there's so much to following Jesus. It's, it's literally a lifetime journey, right? Somebody say amen to that, right? It's, it's a lifetime journey of figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus and be faithful and we're being shaped by it. I kind of think about all the things Jesus has commanded of us and invited us to do as if saying, I want you to build a house. I want you to build a house. And I say, okay, awesome. But sometimes I I have moments in life and and maybe this is, you know, too much information or too much honesty for me. I feel like Jesus said build a house and he gave me a fly swatter. You know, like, no, you got it, man. Go hammer away, build that house. And I'm just thinking, this is the wrong tool for the job. Like, I'm going to need something other than that. And, and this series has been helpful to me because it's been reminding me that Jesus didn't give me a fly swatter. He didn't say build a house and give me a fly swatter. He said build a house. And he gave me a hammer. His word and, and the lessons he teaches and the truths that he wants to bury inside my heart, the things he wants me to believe and, and integrate into my life, they're a hammer. And they have power to drive home nails to build this home of a life that God has called me to build for the sake of his glory and his kingdom. So if it helps you, you can think about it as a hammer or a fly swatter. Hopefully you find these truths that we're talking about to be a hammer and not 
a fly swatter. I think they are. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to pick up right there where we left off last week. I'm going to set this down here. Luke chapter 12, we looked at the first half of the chapter. And if you remember, just a little by way of catching up in case you're just joining us for the first Sunday in this series. You know, lesson one, lesson one, Jesus says, I'm I'm setting my face to the cross. And the first thing he does is he sends his disciples out. And he says, I want you to go out and make more followers for me. So he sends them out and he gives them power. He says, you have power to drive out demons, power to heal. They come back and they are pumped. They're like, man, this, this works. Like, it actually works. Like, I, I, we went out, we proclaimed, Jesus, that you are building God's kingdom. You're here, you're here to establish it, and you're using us to do it. And people listened, and they responded, and they saw life in the claims that you're making. And he said, that's right. I, I don't want you to talk. I want you to get out. I want you to do it, right? So the first thing he does is he doesn't actually teach them a lesson. He sends them out to learn a lesson because they'll learn more doing than, than actually just sitting down for, like, a powwow, you know? And so they do that. The second lesson is they, they actually instigate this lesson. They come to Jesus and they say, we need you to teach us how to pray. That's a great question, isn't it? Hey, would you teach me how to pray? By the way, that's a great question when you pray to ask God. Show me how to pray. So we get the famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And some of you might be familiar with that, right? Jesus teaches them, not a, not a method, not a like pray these words every time you pray, but he teaches them a model for praying. So here's how you approach the Father in a loving relationship with him, trusting that he hears you and wants to hear you and wants to spend time with you. And he wants to communicate things back to you by the power of his spirit. So he says, you're going to need to know how to do that. I'm not going to be here. Like There's going to come a day where Jesus' disciples are going to not be able to turn to him and say, can you teach us how to talk to God? He's not going to be there at that moment. So they're going to need to know that. That's, That's a hammer he's giving them to know how to do life after he's gone. So he says, go out, make disciples. He says, let me teach you how to pray. And then last week, if this one hits you like it hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Says, how, how do we live lives freed from worry? And we've all worried, right? And so last week, we just spent some time examining. Jesus actually invites us into a life free from, not, ever, not free from ever having a moment where we feel some fear and trepidation, but a life free from being sort of dictated to us by worry. Do you ever feel like when you worry or or, or feel fear that it's almost kind of bullying you and telling you what you will do or not do? That fear is absolutely like taking control and it's in charge and you don't feel in charge anymore. What what happened here? How did did this turn the tables on me? And and Jesus invites us into believing some things. I'm not gonna reiterate all of them, but last week we, we talked about things that Jesus invites us to believe and as we believe them, they drive fear out. And church, family, I, I do, I want you to remember that, that faith and fear are like oil and water. If you, have a, if you have a glass filled with fear and you pour in the rich, life-giving truth of God's water into that glass, it doesn't just mingle it together. It pushes the oil of fear out because the two don't mix. You with me? You follow that? So pour God's truth into your heart and into your mind again and again and again. Just saturate yourself with it and and see if, I mean, really, see if God doesn't start to really drive fear out of your life, drive worry out of your life with those deeply entrenched entrenched truths. So that's that's where we've been. Those are the hammers that we've been getting. The fourth lesson today is this one. It's super simple. Be ready for me when I come back. That's the lesson Jesus is gonna teach his disciples. Be ready for me when I come back. Luke chapter 12, 
verse 35 through 40. Let me read it to you. Read along with me if you would. And it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you today. By the way, if you need a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have some on hand in the Welcome, de- in the welcome Center. Just make your way back there after the service. Just say, hey, I'd love to get a Bible. And they'll, just, they'll, they'll, I was about to say they'll throw one at you. They will not throw one at you. They will hand one to you. We'd love for God's word to be in your hand. Verse 35 says this. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, that's the middle of the night, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. There's our main idea, right? You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So that last verse, verse 40, it's just really essentially telling us what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples and therefore us now, many years later. Be ready. You don't know when the Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus takes on for himself. That's a title coming out of the Old Testament uh, about this, this figure who would come that all the prophets talked about. Daniel talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. There will be this Son of Man, and he will be sort of the, the representation of God's, of God's good man. You know, And so Jesus is saying, I fulfill all the prophecies of that person, that man who was to come. Uh, when he gives himself that title, Son of Man, in case that's confusing for you. He's, he's talking about himself there. So let me give you a couple things now. When he says, be ready, because I'm, you know, I'm coming back, and, and you're gonna need to be ready for that. And so he's giving us the hammer he's trying to give us today is what does a life of readiness look like? And I wanna offer a few thoughts, but first, the question we probably need to answer is why is, it, why is that such a good hammer? Why is that a thing to have to build the house we need to have? Uh, why is it good to know that he's coming back? I mean, I can kind of get how teaching me to pray because you're not gonna be around Jesus, I get that. Like, I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need that. I'm gonna need to know how to pray. That makes sense. Uh, you know, teaching me how to make more followers for you, just practically, like, what do you do? How do you talk about Jesus? How do you, you know, what strategy would you use to approach someone and say, God loves you, he wants to redeem you in his kingdom. How does that work? That, that seems to be a hammer I definitely recognize that I will need when you are not here with us, Jesus. But sometimes I wonder if this one felt like a hammer right away because the disciples might be thinking, okay, yeah, you're leaving and you're coming again. Well, there's at least a couple reasons, there's more than a couple, but a couple I wanna point out today, why this is such a good thing uh, that Jesus, now keep in mind, he's being very intentional about what he chooses to, to bring into his disciples at this moment. He's going, okay, here's the crucial things you need to know. Let me make sure I tell you this. And he's just talking to the disciples. He's not talking to the crowds. One of the things when you read through the Gospels that's really important to identify as you're reading through these stories, these parables that Jesus tells and and the things that he does and the the lessons that he gives, when you're doing that, pay attention to who he's talking to. so for instance, the, the episodes we're looking at in this series are just episodes where he's kind of huddled the disciples together, his closest followers. And he said, come here, come here, Shh, come here, get close. I want to tell you something. And he's, kind of, he's, he's got them leaning in now. He's going to tell them what they need to know to be his followers. He speaks very differently to the crowds. And he speaks really differently to the religious like elite the people who think they've got it together and that God loves them because they're the religious experts. He does not have a lot of kind words for them. So depending on who he's talking to, he kind of speaks very differently. Now, 
Here's why this is such a good hammer to have in your tool belt, right? To be able to do the work of building the house that God has called you to build when Jesus leaves. Number one, it sets your expectation. It's so important to know that Jesus is coming back and that you're to be ready because it sets your expectation in two ways. One, that he is coming back. That that's gonna happen. That there's gonna come a day. And by the way, according to this text and every other one in the New Testament that talks about it, we have no idea when that will be, which means that before this service ends, Jesus could come back. That would be a great service. I'm just going to say everyone that doesn't end that way is a disappointment to me. He's coming. He is coming. And to have that as an expectation, boy, it just, it's a game changer in terms of what it does to bring faith and drive out fear and induce hope. And it just changes a person to believe that Jesus is coming back. The other thing that does expectation-wise, by the way, is that it tells us that what we do now really matters. And let me tell you why. Not just because one day, hey, Jesus is gonna come back and, and you know, what we've done with our lives will be measured by him. He'll, he'll, he'll ask us if we were good stewards of the, the money and the time and the talent, the skills, all the things he gave us. He'll, he'll, we'll be called to account for those things. How well did we take care of the resources God placed in our hands? So, that's easy enough, right? Because I can understand, okay, so I get how, I mean, I get that I, what I do matters now because one day I'm gonna be in the presence of God and I'm gonna give an account for what I've done. But that applies whether or not Jesus comes back or not because I might die tomorrow, I might die 50 years from now, but when I die, I know that's gonna happen and therefore it doesn't really matter whether Jesus comes back or not as it pertains to caring about what I do now. But there's a specific reason why Jesus coming back actually informs how important what you and I do today with our talents and in our physical world is, is because Jesus is coming back because he's going to remake everything and make it new, all of the created world. We're not gonna spend forever, eternity, in a heaven that is sort of untangible. We are going to spend forever in a new heaven and a new earth where heaven meets earth and the two come together and you will, it will be tactile. There will be trees and grass and sky and buildings and everything, you, everything we have now, but perfectly done without the effects of sin. Imagine living in that world. Now, what God is saying is what you do in my world that I'm going to recreate and make new again, what you do in that world matters immensely because I'm coming back to make it all new and you better be be caring well and stewarding well for the world in which you live. Now, just think about it for a minute because we could have salvation in Christ if Jesus dies on the cross as a, a payment for the penalty of our sins and then he rises from the dead as evidence that he can both defeat death and that God received that sacrifice as an acceptable offering for our sins. We need both those things. But the, the last element of the gospel is the return of Jesus, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits at his right hand because his work, his saving work is completed, but he will one day come back to complete his renewal of the world. And because we have this piece of him coming back, we know that what we do here matters immensely. Am I, are you guys tracking with me? Am I making some, some sense? Okay, so that's what I want to get through, those kinds of expectations. Now, let me do a brief little aside here. I recognize that could have been a little confusing, so forgive me if it was. But let me do a brief little aside here, because I recognize, I mean, 
Every week we are, we are a crowd of, of folks who believe and, and those who don't believe, some who are skeptical, some who are searching, some who are deeply convinced. I mean, this, we as, as, a, as a church just represent a, you know, a, a broad spectrum of that. So I recognize that like, as I was doing you know, my homework this week and kind of researching and reading and thinking, there's a lot of folks that when you talk about Jesus coming back, they, they, that, is a, that idea is a non-starter for them. It's like, he's not coming back. That's not, look, it's just not happening. Um, and there's a lot of folks that have a lot of um, things that are not real kind to say about folks like me who believe that he is coming back. Um, and so it's interesting when you kind of start to read some of those things. But let me offer this thought. If you're in that camp of wondering, like, or not wondering, but maybe convinced Jesus isn't coming back, okay? Ultimately, uh, Jesus coming back hinges upon the fact that he is raised from the dead. Because if he's raised from the dead, if, if we can get there, then would you say that it's, it's probably not a big leap to believe that he's also then coming back because he's still alive? Is that a fair logical assumption to make? So if that's true then, uh, I'm not gonna give you a ton of evidence for the, for the resurrection, but one that's helped me in my moments of just dealing with skepticism and, and doubt and confusion. Uh, well, let's be honest, church, one of the things, by the way, that's super important for you as a if you're a follower of Jesus, is to acknowledge your doubts and your fears. Do you know that? When you're so steeped in like, it is, and I've never doubted, I've never wavered, that's like inhuman, Right. I mean, honestly, I, I would imagine if you, our, you know, our friends who are here who are, who are questioning and who are searching and wondering whether Jesus, I mean, yes, have we, can we come to a conviction that's absolutely true that Jesus is the Son of God? Of course, absolutely. I'm not saying we stay in doubt about that. But I'm saying there's not a human being alive that doesn't struggle with doubt and fear and concern over a thousand issues in their life and, you know, and have to work through those things. So just acknowledging that you're doing that as a follower of Jesus, just that's super important. Don't think that your best tool for helping people believe in Jesus is acting as if you've never had a doubt in life. That actually doesn't help people. So I just wanna, I want you to know that. That doesn't help. In, in my moments of doubt and skepticism and confusion, I will say one of the things that has helped me when it comes to the resurrection is this. It, it's super just blunt historical fact. Jesus was put on the cross by Roman officials and by Jewish officials who both, who both believed for one reason or another that he needed to die. A uh, variety of reasons. They put him on the cross, they killed him, they put him in a tomb, and then they surrounded the tomb with professional soldiers who under pain of death, under the threat of death, had to guard that tomb because they had heard rumors that Jesus had talked about possibly rising from the dead. And they said, look, we know that's lunacy. He's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. So let's make sure nobody steals the body. Let's make sure nobody does any kind of funky stuff that would get people to believe. Then Jesus' disciples, not many days later, start claiming that he has risen from the dead. And 500 plus people start to claim that they have seen him risen from the dead. Now, if you are the officials, right, who have, who have crucified this man and people are claiming that he's been raised from the dead, you, there's one thing, it's the only thing you have to do to stop this thing called the church, which we are now sitting as a part of thousands of years later because it's gone forward generation after generation. There's really only one thing you need to do to stop this from ever happening. We would not be here had they been able to do this. What's the one thing that you would do? Produce a body. Yeah, it's grotesque, right? But you just, you pull the body out of the grave and you say, no, he's not risen from the dead. Here he is. Now, why wouldn't you do that? The, the most logical reason for, if you look into the historical evidence around the resurrection, 
I, I, I would encourage you to really do that because yes, there are other ways to explain away, but the, the most logical, most straightforward, most obvious conclusion from all the evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead, is that he overcame the grave. There are so many other hurdles to any other explanation. This is the clearest and most obvious one. And to deny that explanation, honestly, friends, it, it is to push back against obvious, against logical conclusion. And look, I know I haven't, by saying that one little piece, I haven't given you, if you're, if you're wondering and, and searching or skeptical, I know I haven't given you like, oh, I'm convinced. Like, I'm not under any illusion that that's happened. But I just want to encourage you to take that into consideration. Because we're talking about the fact that Jesus is going to come back. If he's been risen from the grave, then there's really not a big jump to make that he has come back. So let me, let me end that aside now and come back into now this discussion of what does believing that Jesus is going to come back, and we need to be ready for it, what does that do for us in terms of living a life of readiness, okay? Now, we're going to do three things. So the question we're answering is, what does it look like to live a life of readiness for Jesus' return? And we read Luke 12, 35 through 40. The first thing that we're gonna see in this text is this. Point number one, do your daily work. Do your daily work. Now, that is such a no-brainer. I know that you hear that and you think to yourself, like, okay, like, you know, I was kind of, I was looking for profound and you gave me do your daily work. You know what I mean? Like, seriously, really? Um, but I just want to say this, like when I think about this idea of being prepared for Jesus to return, at least until this week, I started doing more studying and more thinking. And I kind of, I had, honestly, friends, I had just gotten away from pondering it that much, the return of Jesus. And I started to ponder it again. And I started to realize that all the things the scriptures tell us about his return and how to be prepared for it are not like this laundry list of Herculean tasks that seem impossible to do. They are a simple, straightforward, daily life sort of a, a list of things that Jesus says, I, I, do this, live this way. And I started to get less intimidated. It was really helpful to me, honestly. I hope it's helpful to you too. I'm, I was thinking this, I was like, man, I hope I, can, I hope I can be as much help to them as this was for me this week in terms of thinking through this thing. So look at ver the first verse, verse 35. He says this. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, okay, he's going to give, use two metaphors in, this, in these five verses, two metaphors in five verses. So he's jamming a couple in there. But before he even gets to the metaphors, he starts with this phrase, right? Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. So what's, he, what's he getting at there, right? Well, he's about to launch into a metaphor, where he's gonna say there's a master, he's gone away to a wedding feast. It's the all the things we're meant to sort of conclude as we read it is that the master's gone far away. The master's gone on a long journey to a wedding. We don't know, you know, what the reason for that was or who he knows, but he's, he's out there. He's at a wedding feast. The servants know he's coming back. They don't know when. He's a long way away. And so the metaphor is stay ready, be ready, because the master could come back at any moment. And he starts by saying, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, when he says that, the first, our first impression is probably to think that what Jesus is saying in this, as he's about to start this story is essentially, you know, be ready to work at any time, right? So if you're dressed for action, if you've got your lamp burning, it means you haven't turned it out and gone to bed, you're ready for the master to return at any time and therefore you're, you're like ready to do work. But I want you to catch something. What he's saying is not do a list of things to get ready for the masters to return and then you'll be done and you'll be prepared. 
Like you'll get to this place of being prepared. What he's saying is the servant who is dressed for action and has their lamp lit is the servant who is doing their day-to-day tasks constantly. So that when the master comes, it's not that they're sitting like looking at the door and waiting, okay, I've done everything, I'm in my clothes, I've got my lamp right here and I'm ready and I'm just gonna stare at the door. What he's saying is that servant is up, they're cleaning the house, they are taking care of the chores, the tasks, the things that they've been given to do, they are doing so that when the master returns, he is well pleased to see that everything that he has commanded them to do in their daily work is being done. Now, here's why I think that's so important for us, right? Because what it means is that, a couple things. What it means, one, is that being prepared for Jesus to return is never going to be a past tense thing in your life. Being prepared for Jesus is about living a life of preparedness and it is always present tense. Do you get what I mean when I say the difference between those two things? You will always be, so don't just get out of your mind feel like, okay, I'm gonna dedicate the next year of my life to really getting ready for Jesus to come back and then I'll be set and then I can go on to other things. Living a life that's ready for Jesus to come back is literally a, always a present tense reality. It's always something that you're doing. The second thing that it means is this, is that your daily work really matters. Your daily work, whatever you do, if you are an engineer or a teacher, if you cut hair, if you, you know, um, I don't know, I'm just listing professions at this point, right? Whatever it would be. Whatever you do, and not just that, by the way, not just your job, not just the job you do. It's the, it's the faithfulness in the daily routines again and again and again, a long obedience in the same direction, right? It means that when you're tucking your kids in bed at night that you're not rushing through it because you're opening the Bible with them and praying with them and taking moments to listen to them in those moments. You know those moments right before they go to bed when all of a sudden the floodgates open and they're like, hey, let me tell you everything that when I asked, when I asked about it earlier, you weren't gonna tell me. Right, but now, something about the bedtime hour. I don't know what it is. There's a lot to say. It's probably stalling, but that's okay. Right, those are precious moments. Or, I mean, college students, prepping for that test. Like, stop treating college as if it is preparation and only preparation for the next season of life. It is, it's preparation so that you can be prepared to do a job, but also it matters very much to God how you prepare to take that exam. Being faithful in the daily thing he's given you that day, not the thing he's going to give you in five years, the thing he gave you to do that day. The walk across campus and the way you interact with that person that you, that you come in contact with, the doing of the laundry, right? Fold that laundry like Jesus is coming back, people. <laughs> you know, get those corners just right. Fitted sheets are the nemesis to that. The vacuuming of the house and the cooking of the meal and the doing of the dishes. I mean, I know, look, you're like, look, you're talking about Jesus coming back and I wanted something profound about how you be prepared and you gave me fold the stinking laundry. (laughs) You'll never fold the laundry the same way again. (laughs) But it's true. Be faithful in your daily work. Be faithful in your daily work. God is well pleased. And, And friends, I mean, please let go of this notion that there is some super spiritual work that some people do and then there's just the daily work that other people do that's less spiritual. There is no such thing. 
Every work is a work that God intends to be pleasing to him. Every daily task. There is no small kingdom activity. There isn't. You're preparing for the return of Jesus. Be ready. And be ready means do your daily work and do it faithfully. Now, number two, if that's number one, number two is this. Look to and long for the day of his return. Look at what he says next in verse 36 and 37. So he says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And then this is really, really my favorite thing he says in this whole story. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. I don't know if you just caught what he just said there. Because we might be tempted to see that waiting for him to return looks like being ready to do work when he gets home, right? And that's the image of the master and the servants, right? The master coming home from a long journey and he's saying, be ready. The second he's at that door, I want that door flinging open and I want the servants running out and saying, all right, I got the horse. I'm gonna stable the horse, brush it down. We can't, you know, put it away wet. We gotta dry the horse off. We gotta take care of all these tasks. Get the master a meal. He's been on a long journey. He needs to be well fed. We need to take care of all the tasks, unpack the bags, make sure that he's got what he needs, get his bedclothes laid out. The master is home. We might think it's, if we just, upon first glance, we might think that that's what Jesus is using this metaphor to teach us. Be ready to work. And, and to be sure, friends, let me just encourage you with this. When Jesus comes back, there is work that we will do and we will join him in. First Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, go check it out this week. It's crazy. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we will judge the world and judge angels as followers of Jesus. I don't know what that means. I, mean, literally, I, I literally don't understand exactly in what way we are going to judge angels. But 1 Corinthians 6 tells me it's true. So there's work that we're going to join him in. So do you know what that means in terms of being prepared, by the way, for Jesus to come back? That whole context of 1 Corinthians 6 is about not having lawsuits between people who follow Jesus. Like if I follow Jesus and you follow Jesus, we should be able to settle our differences and our conflicts without asking a judge to decide between us. We should not need someone who does not follow Jesus to tell us how to be reconciled to one another. We have the blood of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to one another. For heaven's sake, that's what Paul's saying, do not go to a judge to have him tell you how you as two followers of Jesus are supposed to be reconciled to one another. That's silliness. So what he's essentially saying is this being ready for Jesus' return and the fact that we're going to join him in the work of, of, of judging the world and judging angels means that we need to be cultivating wisdom and the ability to resolve conflicts within our own church family so that we are people who are prepared with the kind of wisdom required to do the work that we're gonna do with God in his new kingdom when he comes to establish it, the work of, of judging. Now, we can unpack more of what that fully means another time. But you get what I'm saying. There's work that we'll do with him, but he's not ultimately pressing into this work that we're, gonna get, that we're going to get to do with him when he comes back. Ultimately, what he's saying is something very different because look at what he says in verse 37, right after verse 36. So right, it's like the idea is be ready to fling that door open and, and, and go to work, right? But then he says, the master will get there and he will be so pleased that the servants were so eager for him to get back that instead of having them do a bunch of work, what's he gonna do? 
he is going to say, hey, have a seat. I'm going to make you guys a meal. I'm going to put on my servant's clothes. Now, the master just traveled a long journey. And Jesus is saying, he's going to come in. He's going to look at what you have done in being ready. He's going to be so pleased with that. That what he's going to do is he's going to say, let me put on my servant's clothes. You guys sit down. I'm going to make you a meal. And then we're going to sit and we're going to have a meal together. Now, you and I hear that and we go, oh, well, that's an interesting kind of twist. But you need to know that when the disciples heard that, in the ancient Near East context in which they lived, that would have floored them. They would have said, wait, what? No master puts on servants' clothes and says, yeah, I'll serve my servants after a long journey. Nobody does that. That's crazy talk. And Jesus is pointing that out for a reason. Why? Because what he wants us to get is not just that being ready for him to come back is not just about being ready to do work with him when he, when he comes. It's about longing for him to return because we love him so much. That's what, the, that's what the servants, that's what the master in this story is so pleased with. He comes home and the servants have been saying, we can't wait for the master to get here. He is so good. We love serving him. We love that he's our master and we miss him while he's gone and I I, we want him to come back. We can't wait. And so they fling the door open, not just to do some work, but because they are thrilled that the master is home. Now think about that in light of Jesus' return. Because if we're honest, if we're honest, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us think, I, I, I do know that I want Jesus to return, but I'd kind of like to do this first. If I could just, and just fill in the blank, whatever stage of life you're in, if I could just get married first, that'd be nice. If I could just have some kids first, or just have some grandkids first, or just watch my daughter get married first, or if I could just, you name it, whatever, you've all got one, right? I see the smirks on your faces right now, you're looking at me. It tells me you are, you are giving yourself away to me. There's nothing better than the return of our master. Whatever you don't get to do, if he were to return in five minutes from now, you will not be worried about. Because the marriage you want, he's the fulfillment of that marriage. The reason you want to be married, if, if you want to be married, the reason you want to be married is because we have a true and better spouse and he's coming for us. The reason you want to have kids is because we have a heavenly father whose kids we are that we are going to be ultimately reconciled with and with forever. The thing that you think you want to happen before Jesus returns, the, the, the kind of funny little twist to that is the reason you want that thing is because of Jesus, if it's a righteous thing, Right? So I'm just aware that in my heart what creeps up is a desire and a love for the things of the world more than a desire and a love for Jesus, my master, my good master, to come home, or not home, but to come back, right? To come back and to remake all things new. And what he's telling us here is this. Treasure, treasure, look to it and long for it, the return of Jesus. That's part of being ready, 
looking for it and longing for it. This is essentially, this is the kid waiting up in the kitchen. Dad's on a business trip. The flight's gotten delayed. It's getting in late. The kid hasn't seen dad for a week and just misses dad so much that he waits up till after midnight when dad comes through the door, heavy from a week's worth of work, lays down the bags, looks up, sees his boy in the kitchen and says, what are you doing up? He says, dad, I just missed you so much. I just couldn't go to bed until I saw you. That dad is breaking out the ice cream <laughs> and going, two scoops, brother. Come on. Whatever you, I mean, come on. I mean, and that's a moment you remember 30 years later, right? Because that kid loves his dad. He just wanted to, he just, he just wanted his dad to come home. That's the kind of moment he's talking about here. He's talking about his people, his church, longing for and looking for his return all the time. Oh, come, come, come. We might call it cultivating our come quickly. That's what I call it. Cultivating our come quickly. You remember Revelation chapter 22, second to last verse in the entire Bible, right? It says the one who testifies to these things, the one who testifies says, I am coming soon. And then John writing says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Or some versions, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? So Jesus says, I'm coming. And he says, yes, let it be. Come soon. How quick can you get here? So how do you cultivate your come quickly? How do you do that? Because I'm talking about like longing for the return of Jesus and you might think, well, that's great. You can tell me I'm supposed to long for it, but how, how do I do that? How do I actually generate a longing for Jesus to return? Well, I'll give you a couple things. These are super practical and they're not hard. All right. The first thing I would tell you is this. Read good books. Read good books. And I don't just mean good Christian books, okay? I don't mean just theology books. Although I'll give you two that are rich theology. They're not, they're not heavy or hard. But uh, I've mentioned these before. A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. Oh, my goodness. If you want to spark an affection for Jesus, read that book. J.I. Packer's Knowing God, it's another one. My goodness, it will, it will, well, just be ready because it's gonna, it's gonna turn over the apple cart, okay? Things start to get reordered when you start to fall in love with the nature and the attributes of God. Those are a couple things to read. But don't just read that. Read, read good, read good literature. Read good fiction. Read books like The, the Count of Monte Cristo, Alexander Dumas. You guys read that one? Oh my goodness, I, I finished reading that. It's a, it's a thick one. I finished reading that. It's a story of rescue and redemption. It's a story of forgiveness. It just, it's got gospel fingerprints all over it. And when you read stories that have that story arc of, of, of fall, rescue, redemption, and resolution, when you read stories that have that arc, do you know why your soul and why every movie you've ever watched and why every, all follow that same arc? Do you know why? Because our souls as human beings were made to crave that because we need it because it's the story God is telling, by the way. This whole world is one big story God is telling and it's a story marked by fall, rescue, redemption, restoration. He's telling it and your soul craves it. And so when you read The Count of Monte Cristo or when you watch that film and it's got a great story arc following that, you love it because that's the story God is telling through your life. Because that's the story he's telling in the world through you. He's redeeming you. 
And that's part of his story. And so you crave it. I crave it. Man, I read The Count of Monte Cristo. If you know the story, it's so phenomenal. Don't just watch the movie, please. Go read the book. It's so good. I read that on the valley floor of Yosemite National Park. Half Dome here, El Capitan here, thinking Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. I'm reading this great work of fiction, this great old piece of literature. I'm just thinking, and I'm, I'm sitting on a log, the stream's going by. That's a good day. I mean, that's a day, right? I'm just, I'm like, my buddy's there with me. We're camping. He's like, you want to? I'm like, shh, go away. This is, this is too good, right? I'm just caught up in it. Read good books. Watch good films, right? Here's the thing. The more you begin to identify the beauty of the creator in his creation, not just in the stars and the trees, but in, in, in acts of culture, cultural goods like literature, like film, you know, the more you begin to see that, the more you'll begin to crave his return because you'll see his fingerprints everywhere. Can I give you a homework assignment? Okay, Facebook is notorious for being a place for criticism and just meanness. I go on like once a month and I don't even like that. Here's your homework assignment. You need to take a fast from posting anything critical. I don't care how witty you think you are. No critical statements for one week on Facebook. Your assignment is post only things that point to the beauty of the maker. And I'm not saying you have to point to like some overt, like I watched a, I looked at a mountain today and it was pretty. You know, it's fine. You can do that. That's true, right? But pointing to the places where God is at work, where you see people rescuing and redeeming people, where you read a story that you were fascinated by because you just thought it was amazing. Has anybody read this piece of literature, right? I, I read a poem today and it was so rich with truth and so invigorating to the soul, I had to share it. So one week, nothing critical, only posting the beauty. Because here's what happens. The more you begin to do that, the more you begin to see the beauty of God in cultural goods, the more you'll begin to crave the return of Jesus. That's how you begin to long for and look for the return of Jesus. The great artist named Makoto Fujimura, right? I know you're all super familiar with him, all right? Makoto Fujimura, he's a painter and he's brilliant. Japanese artist, believer, follower of Jesus. And he just, he has some brilliant things to say about art and the art world and living in that world and how to do that faithfully and follow Jesus and be a creator of beauty. He says this, I'm kind of paraphrasing him. He says, culture is not a war to be fought, but a garden to be cultivated. Culture is not a war to be fought, but a garden to be cultivated. Cultivate the garden of culture if you want to long for the return of Jesus. Last point I want to make today is this. What does a life of readiness for the return of Jesus look like? And the last one is consider his return in all your decisions. Super simple, right? Consider his return in all of your decisions. Now, you notice the last metaphor that he went to, the last thing, he switched metaphors at the end and he went and he said, essentially, there's a thief and the master wouldn't leave the house if he knew the thief was gonna come and break in. If he knew when that was gonna happen, he wouldn't leave. He'd stay there, keep the house locked up, right? Jesus is not saying he's a thief. or It's a, it's a kind of a weird reverse metaphor, but essentially what he's saying is, you don't know when I'm coming back, so be ready. That's what he's saying. Now remember, Matthew 24, the disciples are asking about this. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, uh, the Father hasn't even told me when I'm coming back. He says, I'm coming back, but I don't even know when. The angels don't know when. I don't know when. The only one that knows when is the Father. 
So in other words, kind of what Jesus is saying to the disciples and then by virtue to us is, hey, by the way, if he hasn't even told me, he ain't gonna tell you. We don't know when he's coming back. But we are to make all of our decisions in light of the fact that he is coming back. Just think about that for a moment. When you, before you choose to buy that house or before you choose whether or not to, you know, to um, partake of that and say, I'm gonna give time and energy to this endeavor, consider the fact that Jesus is coming back and ask how that, how that there are other things to consider, not just that, but put that in the equation. Put it in the equation that Jesus is coming back. That's gonna happen. Now, that doesn't mean like you never watch TV or you never take a nap or, you know, like look busy, he's coming back, right? It doesn't mean that. What it does mean, though, is that you consider, you consider the reality that his return has for the choices that you make. Now, there are, there are several places. I'm not going to go into all of them, right, because we need to wrap up. But let me just point you a couple places where Jesus' return is talked about in the Scriptures. I mean, this story right here is one of them, right, Luke 12. Uh, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, and one more I wanted to give you. Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, and Revelation 19. Check those out this week. Read them. Because there's different things that he says. When he talks about like Jesus is coming back, therefore consider that in the decisions that you make. Right? He actually gives some markers of the kinds of decisions that are marked by that in those places. So for instance, 1 Thessalonians 5, just to give one example, says be sober-minded. So Jesus is coming back, so be sober-minded. In other words, what he says, what he's saying is, I want you to be really clear in your thinking. So don't do anything that makes your thinking unclear. There's a, there's a number of things you could list in that category making, that make your thinking unclear, right? But I want you to be clear in your, to be sober-minded. Be, have, have a sense of like clarity and sobriety and, and, and weightiness to the way you consider the things of life. That's one way you help think through your decisions well. All right. So those are the things I wanted to give you. I hope, I hope, my friends, that they are a hammer for you and not a fly swatter because we've got a house to build, right? We've got a house to build. So let's pray and then let's sing to close our time of worship today and we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, we love you very much. We do pray that you would take these things, these truths, and as you put them in our hands, may we wield them well for the sake of your kingdom. We pray, Lord Jesus, that our lives will be marked as people who, who know you're coming back and who are excited that you're coming back, can't wait for it, make our decisions in light of it, long for it, and recognize that we've got daily work to do. So Father, call us to it, teach us how, empower us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.